I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Throughout the 1970s in London, Ontario, a sexual predator was on the loose, terrorizing women as they slept alone in their apartments. Several attacks had occurred, and with each assault, the rapist's behavior was becoming more bizarre and more violent. The local press were calling him the Balcony Strangler for his ability to climb up the outside of apartment buildings and gain entrance through unlocked balcony doors. Women would wake in the night with a stranger standing over their beds. He would watch them sleep, but then he would attack, raping and strangling his victims into unconsciousness. But before leaving, he would tidy up their apartments even doing the dishes in one instance. The London police launched a citywide manhunt, searching for a serial rapist. But then his attacks turned deadly. On April 14, 1977, 23-year-old Luella George was found dead in her apartment. And like many of the other attacks, there appeared to be no forced entry into the apartment. Retired detective Fred Shell. I remember that um, screen door, or I can't remember if it was screen or sliding, but it wasn't locked, and that uh, she was lying face down on her bed. And once again, there were no visible signs of a struggle. Nothing uh, seemed out of the way. She was unclothed. The only thing that we really noticed was some dirt on uh, one of the pillows. And uh, as if somebody's dirt from a hand or whatever uh, had smudged the the pillow. So we, we didn't move things or do anything. We waited for our identification section to come in and take pictures and examine things. An autopsy later revealed that Luella George had been raped and strangled. The London City Police were now on the hunt for a killer. But had the balcony strangler strayed even further beyond the limits of the forest city? 
The Luella George murder bore a similar M.O. to one that had occurred in Guelph, Ontario, two years earlier. Diane Betts was discovered by her fiancé on New Year's Eve of 1974. She had been strangled with her own bra and had been sexually assaulted after death. The Guelph police had no suspects in her murder, and the trail went cold for over two years. Then, just two months after Luella George was murdered in London in April of 1977, another young woman was found in her apartment. On July 16, 1977, 22-year-old Donna Veldeboon failed to show up for work, so concerned co-workers called the police. Retired police sergeant Jeff Jones was a uniformed police constable in 1977 and got the radio call to go to an apartment on Orchard Street. And I could see that there was someone in bed. Yeah, I could tell that it was a blonde girl because she had long blonde hair and it was uh, quite visible. The uh, blankets and covers were pulled up over her shoulders and she looked like she was asleep. But Donna wasn't sleeping. She was dead. As I got closer, I could just tell that she was dead. She just uh, looked white. I touched her shoulder with my uh, my hand and it was cold. At that point, I knew that you know, there was something suspicious. Donna Veldboon had been strangled and then posed in her bed. But this time, the killer had left a unique calling card. And I waited until the uh, detectives and the friends of people arrived. And uh, we went back into the bedroom, and uh, they pulled the bedclothes back from the top of her body, down to her waist. And at that point, you could see that there was a cut about uh, three or four inches long under one of her, I think it was her left breast. Uh, it wasn't a deep cut, but it was it was quite a nasty looking cut. Um, but there was no, it wasn't bleeding or anything at the time. At that point, we knew that it was a, a homicide. An autopsy later confirmed Donna Veldboon had been bathed and sexually assaulted after death. But once again, the killer had left the crime scene in pristine condition, like no one had ever been there. He was a phantom. But how did he know which apartments to enter? All of his victims were women sleeping alone in their beds. Had he been watching and laying in wait? The police canvassed Donna Veldboon's neighbors. And another young woman in the building told them about a man knocking at her apartment door the night before. He said he was a police officer, but the woman didn't let him in. And a friend of Donna's told the police she had been on the phone with Donna on the night she died. But Donna hung up to answer a knock at her door. Had Donna been fooled by a man posing as a police officer? If so, how had he gotten into the secure building? Detectives decided to take a look at everyone who lived in Donna's apartment complex. Reviewing a list of residents... No names stuck out in particular. No convicted criminals or sex offenders. But in cross-referencing the list with residents from another victim's building, 
one name appeared on both lists. The London police finally had a suspect in two chilling murders and numerous sexual attacks. Had the balcony strangler finally been caught? I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast, I'm bringing you the true crime story of a real-life boogeyman. A shadowy figure who climbed and crept his way into bedrooms in the dead of the night. He watched. He waited. And then he attacked before they woke. This is As They Lay Sleeping, Remembering the Crimes of Russell Johnson. Episode 2, Confessions of a Killer. Russell Maurice Johnson was a good-looking 31-year-old amateur bodybuilder. At 6 foot 1 and 190 pounds, he had bulging biceps and a great physique he liked to show off. He lived in a basement apartment in Donna Veldboon's building and worked as a stock clerk at the Ford car plant in Talbotville, Ontario. Separated from his wife, he spent most of his free time working out at the gym or with his new girlfriend. Born in Nova Scotia, the family moved when Johnson was young and he had grown up in Guelph, Ontario. Taking a closer look into his background, the police discovered that prior to moving into an apartment in the same building as Donna Veldboom, Johnson had lived in the same building as Luella George. Retired police sergeant Jeff Jones. When we went back over the uh, tenancy list, there was an apartment building where another woman had been murdered several months before. We found that his name was on both lists. So he had been a tenant in the apartment building on Grand Ave where a girl by the name of Luella George had been murdered. And he was also a tenant in this building where Donna Velboom had been murdered. That was bit of an eye-opener for us, and we decided from that point on that he was the likely suspect. The London police shared their information with the Guelph police, who quickly learned that Johnson had been in Guelph at the time of Diane Betts' murder. In fact, he had filed a police report on the same day, claiming a suitcase had been stolen from his car. And it turned out that Johnson's car had been parked just a block from Diane Betts' apartment. His car also matched the brown Buick spotted idling in front of Diane Betts' apartment the night of her murder. The police were certain they had found their killer. But without direct evidence linking him to any of the crimes, they couldn't arrest him. Instead, they decided to put Johnson under 24-hour surveillance hoping he would eventually slip up. For Officer Jeff Jones, who had discovered Donna Veldboon's body, the case was now a top priority. When I came in the next day, I found that I'd been transferred to a quickly convened task force which had been set up to investigate this homicide. 
And I stayed on that task force for about two weeks and a half weeks until it, until it was disbanded. And I was part of the investigation team that uh, looked into uh, Russell Johnson and the circumstances surrounding his background, uh, his associates, friends, family, and so on. For several days, teams of detectives in unmarked cars trailed an unsuspecting Johnson as he went about his daily activities. While he looked like an average guy, the police did notice some odd behavior. At the gym where he worked out, undercover officers noticed that the dedicated bodybuilder was extremely neat and obsessive about keeping his hands clean. He always wore gloves. The police also noticed that Johnson would drive aimlessly around the city with no apparent destination. Sometimes he would park his car and walk around for a while. But still, nothing he did could link him to any of the sex attacks or murders. The police also placed a wiretap on Russell Johnson's phone and soon discovered he was planning a trip. Had he caught on to the police following him? Was he trying to run? They still didn't have any solid evidence against him, but the London police knew they had to act quickly or their number one suspect might get away for good. Everybody put their heads together and tried to figure out, well, there's no way that they were going to let him leave the country. And so they figured, well, we've got nothing to lose. We, We don't have enough solid evidence on him at the moment, but there's enough to go and approach him and see if he will come in and uh, voluntarily and give us a statement or at least talk to us in some way. On July 28, 1977, London Police Inspector Bob Young and Detective Larry Ross went to Russell Johnson's apartment to bring him in for questioning. Johnson did not resist their request, but asked if he could phone his lawyer and his girlfriend. While in his apartment, the police noted it was incredibly neat and tidy. At the police station, the two seasoned detectives interviewed Johnson. And they were both old school coppers, you know, who um, were able to talk to people, no matter what their backgrounds, on their level. And they were able to talk to, to Russ Johnson on his level. But without a full confession, they knew their case against him was weak and they could only hold him for 24 hours without charging him. Johnson wasn't talking, but the police were convinced they had the right man. Finally, after hours of interrogation, Johnson began sobbing and soon confessed to the murders of Donna Veldboom and Luella George in London and Diane Betts in Guelph. It turned out that a former girlfriend of Johnson's had previously occupied the apartment that Diane Betts had moved into. He had gone looking for the girlfriend when he encountered Diane. Describing an almost Jekyll and Hyde personality, Johnson told the police that he had uncontrollable impulses that caused him to attack women. I can't seem to control myself, he said. When that feeling comes over me, I'm lonely. I go for a walk. 
Sometimes I'm driving my car and the feeling comes. I can't help myself. I can't stop it. I stop the car and I get out and I start walking and I don't know where I'm going. Time means nothing. Johnson's confession and strange behavior match what the police had observed when they were following him. He had rages inside him that he couldn't control, that was for sure. And um, he said on more than one occasion to the investigating officers, uh, the lead investigators, that he had this urge to kill and rape women, and it would just come on him, and he had to follow it through. But the police still wanted to know how he had gained entry into high-rise apartments. The strong, amateur bodybuilder told the police how he scaled the outside of apartment buildings, climbing with his bare hands, moving from balcony to balcony in the middle of the night. I have strength way beyond me, he explained to the baffled detectives. I've got no regard for danger. My mind is racing at a terrible speed, and I'm going hand over hand up the balconies, and if I lose my grip, it doesn't matter. Johnson talked about returning to the scene of one of his crimes, a 15th floor apartment. When he looked up, he couldn't believe he had climbed that high. He had this um, ability to climb and climb and climb on the outside of these buildings, up balconies one after another until he got to where he needed to be. And, um, you know, when you look at some of these buildings, we went to all the, all the buildings that we knew he'd been involved with. And um, when you look at them, you, you just shake your head, you know, because you think no one's going to climb up there. Even if you're, some, even if you're a, sort of a, uh, a climber with a climbing background and a roped in, you wouldn't want to do it. Johnson told the police if he saw a woman in bed alone, he would slip into her apartment and watch her sleeping for a while before he attacked. But if he entered an apartment and found a man and a woman sleeping, he would leave because, quote, I love families. I love children. I don't want to hurt anyone. Johnson then went on to say that immediately after an attack, he would feel very guilty. He would tuck the women into bed and clean up the apartments. So, quote, they wouldn't be mad at me. Asked why he had slashed his last victim, Donna Veldboon, Johnson said he wanted to, quote, get inside her where it was safe and warm. As Johnson continued to describe his crimes and motivations, the police soon realized that he was extremely disturbed and unstable. There have been so many, so many, so many terrible things, he said to the detectives. But Johnson wasn't done talking. And by the time he finished, the London police would discover that they had just arrested a monster. And he would turn out to be one of the worst serial killers in Ontario history. Johnson was charged with the murders of Diane Betts, Luella George, and Donna Veldboon. But while in police custody, 
he began hinting there were potentially more crimes and more victims. But he would talk only if the authorities could assure him he would go to a hospital instead of a prison. Johnson had also refused to sign any of his statements. Forced to make a deal with the devil to bring closure to other unsolved crimes, London Crown Attorney Michael Martin agreed that Johnson would not be prosecuted for any other crimes he confessed to. Police suspected Johnson was responsible for numerous other rapes and attacks on women in London and Guelph based on his M.O. But what Russell Johnson eventually confessed to was much more disturbing than anyone could have ever imagined. Johnson said he began breaking into women's apartments in the late 1960s. At first, he would just watch the women sleeping and then leave. But then he felt compelled to do more. In 1969, he attacked a woman who lived in the same building that he lived in with his wife and young son. He strangled Donna Bacchus, a single mother of two young children, and left her for dead. After that attack, Johnson told the police that he checked himself into the London Psychiatric Hospital. He was diagnosed as a sexual deviant and released a week later. The hospital did not advise the police about Russell Johnson and the potential danger he posed to women in the city. Uh, we found out that in 1969, he presented himself to the London Psychiatric Hospital asked to be treated for sexual deviancy. And he said that um, he, uh, he hadn't received proper treatment there. And because of that, he started on this killing spree. Johnson continued breaking into women's apartments and assaulting them. And then, in 1973, he committed his first murder. A murder that no one ever suspected. Russell Johnson confessed to killing 21-year-old university student Mary Catherine Hicks, whose sudden death had been ruled an accidental allergic reaction to prescription medicine. On the night of October 18, 1973, he snuck into her Talbot Street apartment and watched her sleeping before he smothered her with a pillow and sexually assaulted her. He then tidied the apartment before leaving. Johnson then confessed to three additional murders. Alice Ralston in Guelph, Eleanor Hartwick in London, and Doris Brown in Guelph, who had been found by her 16-year-old daughter. Their deaths weren't caused by prescription drugs, hardening of the arteries, or pulmonary edema. They had all been murdered in their beds by a methodical serial killer. The police were stunned by Johnson's confession. But had subtle clues been missed? Did no one notice a pattern of young, healthy women dying alone in their beds who all lived in low- to medium-rise apartments? Russell Johnson had killed four other women without even a hint of foul play. And for his victims' families who were already grieving, 
the reality of how their loved ones had actually died was devastating. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In January 1978, Russell Johnson's trial for the first-degree murder of three women began in London, Ontario. He had pleaded not guilty. In an earlier proceeding to determine his mental well-being to stand trial, Dr. Douglas Wickware, a psychiatrist at the University of Western Ontario, testified that Johnson was a dangerous man. He had a serious mental disorder. However, it did not interfere with his ability to stand trial. In his opening statement, Crown Attorney Michael Martin said he would produce evidence to show how Johnson had killed all of his victims by slipping into their apartments while they slept. And while there was little argument that Johnson was responsible for the crimes he was accused of, the defense argued that he was not guilty due to his mental state. Dr. R. Fleming a psychiatrist who had examined Johnson while he was in custody took the stand to say that Johnson was a sexual deviant. 
He suffered from acute psychotic episodes in which he would lose touch with reality and not understand or remember what he had done. But there were extended periods of stability between episodes, which was how Russell Johnson could appear normal. The friendly guy next door. Retired Detective Fred Shell. Russell Johnson was a very deceptive person. He was a good-looking, physically fit young fella, and it's hard not, if you didn't know the background, not to think of him just as that, as a great young guy. Dr. Fleming also testified that Russell Johnson's psychosis was escalating, as proven during his last murder when Donna Veldboon was also cut with a knife. In the Veldboon case, my understanding is that he uh, was getting a little more violent than what he had been with a number of the other ones. Whatever was wrong was getting worse, said the psychiatrist. After his arrest, the police discovered that Johnson had voluntarily admitted himself to the London Psychiatric Hospital for treatment of a sex addiction in 1969. At the time, Johnson was still living with his wife and son in an apartment building on Mornington Avenue in London. Johnson attacked his first victim in the apartment building where he lived and checked himself into the hospital later that same day. Dr. Nugent, who had treated Johnson in 1969, testified that when he met Russell Johnson, Johnson said his marriage was breaking up and he had sexual impulses which he had difficulty controlling. According to Dr. Nugent, Johnson admitted to watching women and fantasizing about them, and he feared he might eventually harm someone. Dr. Nugent went on to explain that Johnson's childhood and home life had been extremely chaotic. His mother and two brothers suffered from mental illness, and his father had been extremely abusive. Dr. Nugent believed that Johnson had developed a love-hate relationship with his mother with underlying feelings of aggression and hostility. To try to manage his aggressive feelings, Johnson developed an obsessive-compulsive disorder which manifested in his extreme cleanliness and his uncontrollable hand-washing ritual. Quoting what he had written in Johnson's file, the psychiatrist read aloud, quote, Patient is a cooperative and intelligent man who appears fully motivated to change. He is fearful, anxious, and depressed about his future. He does not show any evidence of delusions or hallucinations. Johnson was released after spending 10 days in the psychiatric hospital. Dr. Nugent stated he had no grounds for holding him. Dr. Nugent saw Russell Johnson two more times as an outpatient and wrote in his file. Client says he has felt well since leaving the hospital, but said one evening he felt some of his old impulses returning. He expressed a fear that he might sexually assault a woman. 
Dr. Nugent never saw Russell Johnson again, and no one was ever notified of the very real risk Johnson posed. During the trial, Detective Inspector Young of the London Police Department testified that when Russell Johnson was interviewed by the police, he admitted to killing Diane Betts in Guelph and Luella George and Donna Veldboon in London. Inspector Young also described how Johnson broke down sobbing uncontrollably and told the police that he couldn't help what he was doing and he knew that he needed help. Due to the overwhelming psychiatric evidence presented at Johnson's trial, his defense attorney, Wally Libis, stated that Johnson had indeed murdered the three women he was accused of strangling. But, at the time, he suffered from a disease of the mind that rendered him incapable of realizing the nature of his acts. In other words, he was insane. Crown attorney Michael Martin did not argue the medical evidence and the diagnosis presented during the trial and did not dispute the defense attorney's submission to the jury. Martin suggested that if the jurors had seen each of the crime scenes, they would have clearly seen the murders were an act of a madman. Martin added that Johnson cleaning up the crime scenes and covering the bodies with bedsheets was not an attempt to conceal the crime. Rather, it was what he called a function of Johnson's insanity. Retired police sergeant Jeff Jones. Well, you know, in general, you couldn't have written a more horrific script around Russ Johnson than the things that he did. And when the evidence started coming out about the other assaults and the murders in Guelph and the others in London, you know, we knew that this guy... There was no way that this guy was operating with any sense of normality at all, and that he had to have been crazy. And um, so by the time he got to the Ontario Supreme Court and he changed his plea to uh, not guilty by reason of insanity, um, everybody was on board, the Crown, the, the Crown, the defense, the police, because they knew that this guy was a once-in-a-lifetime kind of criminal, as far as we were concerned. In the London area, you know, he needed to be put away. On February 1st, 1978, after deliberating for only two hours, a jury of six women and six men found Russell Maurice Johnson, a.k.a. the Bedroom Strangler, a.k.a. the Balcony Strangler, not guilty by reason of insanity for the murders of Diane Betts Luella George and Donna Veldboon. Johnson himself did not react to the verdict. When asked by Justice Douglas Crothers if he had anything to say, Johnson lowered his head and said no. There would not be any further murder charges brought against him for the killing of Mary Hicks, Alice Ralston, Eleanor Hartwick, or Doris Brown. Johnson would also not be prosecuted for 10 other sexual attacks on women who had been raped and strangled, but had survived. After the trial, police chief Walter Johnson told the media that the hunt for the bedroom strangler 
was the largest murder investigation in London's history. And it was a miracle that all 17 women had not been murdered. Russell Johnson was committed to the Oak Ridge Mental Health Centre in Penetanguishing, Ontario's only maximum security psychiatric hospital for the criminally insane. Held under Lieutenant Governor's warrants, he would be incarcerated indefinitely. There, he would be protected from other prisoners and would receive the best medical treatment possible. One month after the trial, the London police took the highly controversial step of presenting a report to the London Police Commission outlining Johnson's responsibility for four other murders and ten sexual assaults on women in Guelph and London. The report stated that Russell Johnson had confessed to the crimes and the police were satisfied that he was responsible. The police said they wanted to alleviate the public's concerns that the bedroom strangler had been caught. The families of all of his victims had been notified. Critics pointed out that this violated a principle of justice because Johnson had no chance to defend himself. But Attorney General Roy McMurtry backed the commission, saying the public had a right to know that the man who killed seven women and attacked many others was no longer walking the streets. In 1978, the London police also presented a brief to the Supreme Court, Royal Commission, on the confidentiality of health records, claiming that seven sex murders and nine assaults could have been prevented if the police had been informed of Johnson's mental condition after his first assault. The brief urged that doctors and hospital administrators be forced to inform police about patients likely to cause death or injury to themselves or others. For the many London and Guelph police officers who worked on this case, they never forgot Russell Johnson and the terror he imposed on their cities. It was probably the greatest case that I ever worked on. It's pretty scary stuff, really, when you think of a guy like that out on the loose in the city. But for the families of his victims, their lives would be forever altered by the man who climbed and crept through the darkness of the night. The killer who waited and watched as they lay sleeping. You you can't imagine somebody who's committed that number of murders and, and maybe even more, even being considered for parole. But time changes and things get forgotten then, but not to those that it happened to. On September 10th, 2020, a five-person panel from the Ontario Review Board met by Zoom video conference for Russell Johnson's annual hearing. Due to COVID restrictions, an in-person review at the hospital was not going to be possible. But regardless, a review would still go ahead. That was his right. Russell Johnson appeared on the video conference along with his lawyer, Susan Fraser. Sitting in a room at the Waypoint Center for Mental Health Care in Penetanguishing, the 73-year-old patient 
looked healthy and alert. The once handsome bodybuilder with dark wavy hair was now an overweight senior citizen with thinning gray hair. Family members of his victims were also on the Zoom call and five impact statements were read aloud. 47 years after he began his murderous rampage and even in the midst of a worldwide pandemic, his victims would not be forgotten. Also in attendance was a representative from the hospital and counsel for the Attorney General's office. At question once again was whether Russell Johnson posed a significant threat to society and could he be managed in a less secure institution. For years, Johnson had been trying to move into a different facility where he would have less restrictions and more privileges. I'm not asking to be free, he said in a 2002 interview. I just want less security. I'd like to walk in the garden and see the sky. At another hearing in 2016, he asked for supervised trips off the hospital property to go shopping. He wanted to go to the local Walmart to see their computer selection. But could a serial rapist and murderer actually be rehabilitated. Expert opinion had varied over the years, with some of his doctors believing he could be managed in a medium security facility, while others strongly opposed the idea, saying any contact with women would be extremely dangerous. As one of his doctors had noted years prior, quote, Mr. Johnson is a unique and very difficult case for treatment and rehabilitation. He has been diagnosed with sexual sadism, voyeurism, fetishism, necrophilia, grandiose and entitled narcissistic personality disorder, and alcohol and sedative dependence. A 400-page medical file has recorded his 42-year history at the mental health care hospital. Johnson's lawyer reminded the board that her client was a model inmate at Waypoint and had been for many years. Described by staff psychologists as highly intelligent, Johnson had counseled other inmates on anger management, and at one point he had managed the hospital skating rink. He took an active role in vocational services at the hospital, particularly in the woodshop, where he was considered a perfectionist in his work. It was also noted that Johnson maintained regular contact with family and friends. In 2008, Russell Johnson had consented to chemical castration and began receiving a monthly injection of Lupron, to reduce his testosterone levels and diminish his sex drive. But regardless, doctors still could not find any evidence that suggested any change in his sexual deviance and personality. Therefore, over the years, they had determined that his risk of reoffending was significant and any access to females in a less secure facility could be catastrophic. 
and also key to his potential recidivism was the fact that Johnson had never shown any responsibility or remorse for his crimes. He had consistently blamed his drug use, his failing marriage, and a sleep disorder at the time of his murder spree. And he had never apologized to his victims' families. In fact, he seemed perturbed that they showed up year after year. He said he had gotten on with his life and suggested they do the same. At the conclusion of the unique Zoom teleconference, the board thanked the family members that had participated and acknowledged their ongoing attendance at Mr. Johnson's hearings for many years. And while the board agreed that Johnson had not presented any behavioral or management issues and was compliant with his medication, there was still no evidence to show that his risk to others was reduced. He had committed heinous crimes, and to date, there is no treatment for his sexual deviance and personality dysfunction. He is a sexual sadist who cannot be cured. Therefore, the board ordered that Russell Maurice Johnson would remain detained at the Waypoint Center for Mental Health Care in the High Security Provincial Forensic Program in Penetanguishene, Ontario. I would, I would caution against anyone ever considering it releasing him in light of what he did for quite a long time without anyone even knowing it. In the fall of 2021, the Ontario Review Board will reconvene to once again review the custody and treatment for Russell Johnson. And while their numbers may be getting smaller with each passing year, his victims' families will always be there. They will not forgive, and they will not forget. On the next episode of As They Lay Sleeping, Remembering the Crimes of Russell Johnson, an interview with the daughter of one of Russell Johnson's victims. She was just 16 years old in 1974 when a madman crept into her home in the middle of the night and changed her life forever. As They Lay Sleeping, Remembering the Crimes of Russell Johnson is written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. A special thank you to Fred Shell and Jeff Jones. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you enjoyed this story and others on Story Hunter Podcasts, please subscribe on Apple or your favorite podcast app and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening.
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.